Good morning. Such an abrupt end to that video, isn't it? It's just like, and we're in. Anyway, it's great to see you today. How are you all doing? Good. Great to have you with us. Good to see you, Ben. Back from Cov. The legend that is Cov, the promised land, not. It's so good to be in the house of the Lord together today. We love it uh, when you come. You'll notice today that I am wearing socks and sliders. Dream. I mean, the sun came out for a whole two minutes. And I was like, we've got to dress like it's summer because we don't know when the rain's coming back. So we've got to make our moment. Hawaiian shirts. And literally this morning, I can see Hedy, Hedy? <laughs> I can see Hattie shaking her head. And for those of you who don't know, Hattie is my biggest critic at Sunny Hill. Basically, when I got up this morning, I thought, what kind of combination of clothing can I wear that will hack Hattie off the most? And this is what I conceived, and so um, it's so good to be in the room together today. My name's Dominic, and if you're watching at home online at The Hub or in Hereford at Life Church, we love the fact that you're tuning in with us online. We're excited to be together today. Um, for those of you who haven't met before, really nice to have you with us this morning. Um, we're in a series on the Holy Spirit. We started that. Yeah, one whoop in the room. Very excited about the Holy Spirit. Um, we're in a series on the Holy Spirit, and I'll tell you why. We've done six weeks in a series called Church Defined where we've been unpacking and looking at this idea of what does it mean to be the church. And when I say the church, I'm not talking about Western church or British church. I'm talking about the church of Jesus Christ as revealed in the scriptures. In the scriptures, we see prophecies, promises. We see metaphors and pictures, things that help us understand what God wants the church to be. And what we did over six weeks was really compare what we see revealed in scripture with our reality now and going, where does it work and what is it that we need to adjust, address and maybe look into? And I hope that you found that series helpful. But as I was praying towards the end of the series, I was like, God, what next? What next do we want to talk about? And I felt God say, you need to talk to the church about the Holy Spirit. That's what you need to talk to the church about. And I'll tell you why. I think this is the concern, is that like we can spend months and even years trying to lift Scripture and go, what does God say about the church, the calling on the church, the purpose of the church, the function of the church, all these aspects of the church? I could talk about that for a year, maybe. I might not be clever enough to talk about it that long, but I could try and at least talk about it for another four weeks at least. Okay. But ultimately, if we have the church but no understanding or application of the Holy Spirit, then all we are is a group of people meeting up for a good time. You know, it's kind of like this. If I was to do a series on talking about what makes a Ferrari, okay, and we unpick that, but then I don't talk about the fuel that is necessary to move the Ferrari to its preferred destination, then really I'd be mis-selling you PPI because the Ferrari is just a mass of metal without fuel. In the same way, the church without the Holy Spirit is just a group of people gathering, and it's nice and it's pleasant, but it doesn't separate us from other gatherings, it doesn't separate us from other people. And let me just start with this from the outset, is that the Holy Spirit is the game changer for the church. And actually, it's the game changer for your life. And here's the big thing I want you to take home today, is that the Holy Spirit doesn't just come to make you feel warm and fuzzy on the inside, okay? And the Holy Spirit doesn't come to make you wild as a Christian, you know, and to do crazy wild things, right? Sometimes those things play out because the Holy Spirit moves us in such a way but actually, Holy Spirit comes to give you life and to help you live the life that you've been given. And so today, I'm going to talk about the Holy Spirit. But actually, as I was thinking about today's message, 
on the back of last week's message. Ollie, wasn't he awesome last week when he spoke about... Awesome. Thank you for your ministry, Ollie, last week. Amazing. Guys, that was a bit of a generous clap. You never clap like that for me. Take that back a bit. Let's do it again, but a bit less this time, okay? Wasn't Ollie amazing last week? Right, okay. That's enough. I've had enough for now. No, it was amazing. And Ollie kind of, on Pentecost Sunday, just really spoke about the coming of the Holy Spirit and started to speak about the power of the Spirit and the way of God and all of these things. But as I was pondering what next, I was thinking about some of us here maybe even understand who is the Holy Spirit. You know, because when we talk about the Holy Spirit, generally we jump to Acts, don't we? We talk about like the miraculous outworking expression and manifestation of the Holy Spirit. But who is the Holy Spirit? I think the reason I'm provoked by this so much is because, um, you know, at the beginning of the last lockdown, which I was informed in the first service, that it is the third lockdown we had in January and there was this announcement that many parents had been dreading, which was the fact that like, Boris Johnson would be closing schools again. You know, that evening, I couldn't find Louise. <laughs> I lost my wife. Um, and I was like, where has she gone? Like, I don't think we've fallen out today. Like, I, I think I've done everything right today as a husband. I've been a good husband today. Normally, we chill out in the evenings, but I couldn't find her. And so I look for her, and I go upstairs to the bedroom, and I find my wife perched on the edge of the bed with her head in her hands like this. Right Now, Caleb's in the service today, so this sucks a little bit for him. But her head was in her hands, and, and, and I was like, you all right, Blick? That's the pet name I give for her. You don't need to know why. But I was like, are you okay, Blick? And she was like, I don't think I can do it again, Dom. I just can't homeschool our kids anymore. And as a husband, I said, you'll be fine. See you later. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't. I was like, Louise, you did so great in the last few lockdowns, however many there are. You've been so good. Like, our kids have really flourished under your teaching. Please, please, please. I love all three of them. Don't kill any of them. They're good boys, you know. They're going to look after us when they're older. Let's just get through this season. And I said to Louise, I was like, hey, maybe we could deal with this lockdown slightly differently. Maybe rather than just see it as like a sentence, a prison sentence, let's see it as a God-given opportunity. Okay, let's, let's rewire our thinking around this lockdown. And so I said, what would we do differently if we made the intentional decision to homeschool our kids? What would we do? Because there is an opportunity where the government have said, you now have extra time with your children. What would we do? And we discussed it, and we came to the conclusion that maybe one of the things we would do is like a Bible class. Like, we would introduce some solid theological teaching on the Bible... Okay, to teach our kids that they wouldn't necessarily get at school. And so I kind of committed to starting every day with our three boys kind of looking at Scripture in a new way. And what I mean by that is typically when you try to teach kids, you go to like the story of Noah's Ark, right? Or you go to the story of David and Goliath, and you go to these epic stories in the Bible. And every time what we do is we give a little glimpse of people on purpose, and we give a little glimpse of God at work. But my thought was this, is what would it look like if we actually teach our kids theology? And Louise was kind of like, oh, that'd be interesting, thinking that we've got a four-year-old, Zeke, right? What would it look like if we actually sit in the Word of God and work through the Scripture exegetically, verse by verse, unpicking it, unpacking it, applying it, thinking about it? So I thought, well, why don't we start with the Gospel of John? Now, that was fine. Right, until we started the Gospel of John. <laughs> because what I soon realized 
was that John starts in this way, in the beginning was the Word. So we can't really understand John 1.1 without understanding what the beginning looked like. Immediately I knew this was going to take a long time. Because I'm like, you know, do you understand what this means, kids? You know, I was a Pentecostal preacher at the dinner table. I was like, do you get it? Do you get the implications of this verse for your measly little life? Do you get it? In the beginning was the word. Do you get it? And I'm like, I've got a nine-year-old, a seven-year-old, and a four-year-old just wide-eyed looking at me. What? And I kid you not, by like day four, day five, I started speaking about the fall of Satan. I remember Louise making breakfast in the kitchen one day, and she was just thinking, what on earth are you doing? Like, how did it get to this? And obviously, to explain it to kids, I'm like, how do I talk about who is Satan, first of all? Okay, what, what, what does that mean for us? Like, how did he come to earth? All this kind of stuff. Who made Satan? And I thought, like, in order to help these kids understand, I need to use an illustration. So I said, choose a toy. And do you remember this, Caleb? You chose Tracy Island. So basically, Tracy Island basically represented heaven, right? And we had Satan as one of the black cars or some sort of crazy big monster truck thing that we threw out of heaven, right? And like the wheels just came off the wagon really quick because what I realized was is when you teach kids theology, it's much harder than it sounds. When you try to commit yourself to doing more than just Noah built a boat and all the animals went on the boat and you're trying to teach them kind of the narrative that is overarching through scripture and like God from the beginning to the end, there's actually a whole lot of gaps that you've got to build, like build some foundation into your kids. And the more I've done it, the more I've realized I've been thinking, you know what, church could probably do with some of this stuff because you can sit in church for years and still not really have an awareness or an understanding of some of the big ideas. So like last week, for example, when Ollie speaks on the Holy Spirit, it leads me to think, does everyone in our church really understand who the Holy Spirit is? Because actually in our language, we'll refer to the Holy Spirit as an it or a thing rather than a person. And so I want us to think about that uh, today, if that's okay. And even if it's not, I'm the one with the microphone. So bad news. For you. Um, But I'm going to basically assume that, like most of you in here, have made a decision to follow Jesus, right? But I'm going to assume that you're at ground zero of learning. I want to make an assumption that when I talk about the Holy Spirit, you've heard his name, but you don't know who he is, where he's from. And I'm going to try to begin and start there because as we lead into exploring more of the Holy Spirit, gifts, baptism, fruit of the Spirit, you will then have an understanding for the backstory of the Holy Spirit. So hopefully that works for you. So let's pray. Father God, I pray this morning, Lord, that as we get into this massive area of the Holy Spirit, and as we look at who the Holy Spirit is and what he does, Lord, I just pray this morning that you would open our hearts and open our minds to receive the truth of your word, that we would grow into maturity just the way that you want us to. In Jesus' name, amen. So, if you've got your Bibles, get them. Um, it is going to be on the screen, but I think it's quite help, help, healthy and helpful to kind of look at it so you can see I'm not making it up. But if you gave your life to Jesus, but you had no understanding of anything, the first book you'd get to in the Bible is the book of Genesis, which basically means the inception, the beginning of everything. And in Genesis, you start with four words. And the four words I'll come up on the screen are these. In the beginning, God. 
In the beginning, God. So Genesis isn't just like a nice sounding book title. It actually speaks to the essence of the book. It speaks to the origin of time as we know it. In the beginning, God. It's funny because in the Hebrew Bible, which is where we get our text translated from, we would read three words, and the three words would read like this, Bereshit Elohim. Okay, so Hebrews would read Genesis in this way, in the beginning Bereshit, which means like before uh, anything else existed, Elohim. Now, the very interesting thing about Elohim, let me spell it for you on here. Okay, Elohim is the word that we have in our Old Testament for God, okay? So Elohim is the word for God in the Old Testament. Not always, but often. In this context, that's what it is, Elohim. Now, what's interesting about this word, you need to hear this. I don't know if you can see it over there. I mean, if someone could just stand here and rotate it from side to side, that would be nice. You see, Elohim. In Hebrew, it is grammatically plural, okay? So it's grammatically plural. So it's implying that this God is plural, which is weird when you think about it. Because elsewhere in Scripture, we read in Isaiah 45, for example, the one true God. But grammatically, Elohim speaks of this plural reality to God. But it speaks of a singular entity. Now, some of you, your heads may be frying right now. It may be a bit of hard work, but we're going to get somewhere helpful with this. Like, I've been racking my brains thinking, how do I help people understand what I'm talking about when we use Elohim? And the nearest kind of thought I can muster in my head is this idea of parents. The word parents implies that there's more than one. But when you address parents, you're addressing them as one. Does that make sense? Parents. So there's a plural kind of grammatical essence to the word parents, but it speaks of one entity. And this is what we read in Genesis 1. 1. In the beginning, Elohim. So Hebrews would know from the get-go, this God isn't just like a one-person God. Like, there's something more than just this one-person God. And we, we, we may not understand it from the first four words in our Bible, but we understand in the original text that, like, the writer of Genesis, Moses, is trying to help us understand that this God isn't like man, okay? He's not the same. He's not a single individual, but there's something more to this God. And actually, if you read on, you'll see what happens. It says, "...in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth." Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and then we read this, and the Spirit of God, so now we get this introduction of a person of this Godhead, Elohim, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So there there is this Elohim God in the beginning, and his Spirit Now, the word for spirit in Hebrew, now, I love looking at original text, so I'm a bit of a Bible geek with stuff like that. I love it because it opens stuff up for my head. But spirit in Hebrew is ruach. Everybody say ruach. You've got to clear your throat at the end of that bad boy. Ruach, right? And what it implies is breath and wind. Actually, if you were, because there's so many translations of this word, if you were trying to drill it down to one kind of meaning, the meaning you would have is energy. So in Genesis 1-2, we read this. In the beginning, Elohim, and his energy, or his breath, or his wind, hovered over the waters. Interesting, right? 
So this Holy Spirit that Ollie was talking about last week that came on Pentecost, he wasn't born on Pentecost. The church was born on Pentecost as they're filled with the Spirit, but the Holy Spirit always existed because in the beginning, he was with Elohim. Okay, verse 3. If you're not enjoying this, that's really fun for me because I love it. Okay, and so I'm watching your faces going, why are you telling me this? You'll see why. We're getting somewhere good with this. Okay, verse 3 says this, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, what I would want to propose to you is this, is that in the very first three verses of Scripture, we see the activity and the ministry of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit played out in the first three verses. Now, how do we see that? We've seen Elohim, in other translations, Yahweh, which comes later, which speaks to the Father nature of Elohim. We've seen the Spirit, the Ruach, the breath of God, or the wind of God. So where is Jesus in Genesis 1, 1 to 3? Well, let me see. Like, put it up again, Richard, please. Genesis 1, 3. God said. And you're thinking, how does that speak to Jesus? Now, what we need to do to understand this is, right, get this. This is really funny. If we go to the New Testament, the New Testament where Jesus comes, you've got four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well done, okay. We've got four gospel... You're getting this, Caleb. Make sure you get in this, right, because you're going to pass Bible class this week, okay? <laughs> Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, the first gospel to be written, most scholars agree with this, right, was the gospel of Mark. Where does the gospel of Mark start? The ministry of Jesus. Mark does not mess about. Like, literally, when Mark is kind of capturing uh, what he wants to record for kind of Jesus' influence on earth, he just thinks, like, let's get to it. I know people like that. Maybe you're a person like that. It's just like a whistle-stop tour of Jesus and his mission and his ministry. And he gets straight into it, like the baptism of Jesus, then the ministry of Jesus. And it's 16 chapters long, and it's amazing. If you've never read a gospel before, it's a great place to start because it's a crash course in Jesus. It's just like Mark's just writing, where do I start? I know, baptism, and then ministry. Amazing, okay. But what's really funny, right, it's kind of like Luke is the second gospel writer. Not in order of your Bible, but in terms of chronologically when it was written. Now, Luke was more studious. He was a doctor by trade. And like, I've got an imagination, and this is what I imagine. Please track with me if you can. I imagine he reads the Gospel of Mark and thinks, you can't start the baptism of Jesus. Like, you, need, you need to go a bit earlier than that because John the Baptist came before Jesus and John the Baptist prepared the way for the Messiah, the Son. So Luke, where he starts is the birth of John the Baptist, or at least the prophetic word to Zechariah and their story playing out before Jesus comes. So Luke starts there going, okay, let's get this John the Baptist person established because then when in the Gospel of Luke he pronounces that this Lamb of God has come, it's going to connect. And so I just imagine Dr. Luke thinking, that's a much better way to write an account. Now in the third Gospel writer chronologically, was Matthew. Are you tracking with me this morning? Yeah, just making sure you're with me. Now, Matthew, it's kind of funny, because I imagine that he's read Luke's gospel, or at least heard what Luke's saying, and he's thinking, no, you can't start with John the Baptist. Yeah, because people need to understand that Jesus kind of comes from the line of man. They need to see him in the context of David and Abraham and Adam and all these kind of things, thus Matthew 1. And if you've read Matthew 1, you know it's kind of a painful read in many ways, because it's the genealogy of Jesus. 
Like, I don't even care about my genealogy. Like, I don't care about my distant family. Well, that sounds horrible. Mom, watching in Coventry this morning, I've always cared about my distant I love every single one of them, but I don't know who they are. But Matthew 1 is like a laborious exercise in saying, was the son of, was the son of, was the, you know, and, and linking Jesus to humanity, right, which is cool. And like, if you are inclined to breeze over Matthew 1, try not to, because those things often present nice little treasures that you can discover along the way. But the Gospel of John's interesting because it was the last one written. And I think it's kind of funny because he feels like, looks at Mark and goes, you can't start at his baptism. And then looks at the Gospel of Luke. This is my imagination, by the way. Looks at the Gospel of Luke, say, well, you, you can't start with, like, John the Baptist. Looks at the Gospel of Matthew, saying, well, a genealogy isn't going to cut it, because, like, Jesus was there in the beginning. So what does John write? Look at John 1, 1. If you can put it up, please, Richard. In the beginning. <laughs> so what John does is he's about to talk about the Son, but he roots him back in the beginning. The first three words of John's gospel align to the first three words of the Torah in Genesis. And what he's essentially doing is he's saying, this story is a continuation of that story. So we're in a New Testament, we're in a new reality, but understand this, he's like, like Jesus pre-existed Abraham. Jesus pre-existed Adam and Eve. Jesus finds his origin, the Son of God finds his origin at the dawn of everything. In fact, he always has been. So in the beginning, and then John applies this word. He says, in the beginning was the word. What is that? Well, we know in the original text it's logos. Contextually, which means not just a written word on a bit of paper, but it means like the meaning and the substance of everything. And so John is saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, okay? And we just make sure that I get the right text. And then it says, uh, he was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not understood it or overcome it. So John platforms Jesus at the of everything with Elohim. So now we see this Yahweh, Spirit, Ruach, and Son, Jesus, before he had flesh like me and you on earth 2,000 years ago. He was with God. And John says, without him, nothing existed. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. He was with Elohim in the beginning. And then we go back to Genesis 1-3. Where do we see Jesus? We see it right here. And God said... God spoke. The creative force of creation is Jesus, the Son of God. That is my firm conviction. So we see this triune Godhead Elohim, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Loud and proud, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the context. But this is a problem. This is a problem. Because how can there be one God, yet three? How can there be three aspects to God, yet they be one? Because it's almost unfathomable. Our brains are inept at trying to work this one out. 
You can rack your brains all day long, and people do, trying to work out an analogy. There's all sorts of analogies out there. Water, steam, ice, the eggshell, the yolk, the egg white, all these things. But every analogy falls foul, because this is what you've got, is you've got Elohim, okay, here, God, okay, and we've got three aspects to this Elohim. We've got Father, Yahweh, okay, and we've got Spirit, and we've got the Son. Okay, so here's the situation. And the reason this is so hard for us to get our head around, it's a very weird technique I'm employing here, is because Elohim is the Father. Okay, do I need this camera up close, Richard, for people to see this at home? No? Okay, cool. So for those watching you at home, there's a drawing on the board, okay? The Father is Elohim, and the Spirit is Elohim, and the Son is Elohim, okay? So we can maybe accept that. Maybe not everyone can, but that's what I believe the Scripture reveals to us. But what we also see is that the Father is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, yet they are all Elohim. <laughs> like, how does my little measly brain kind of reckon with this stuff? And you might say, well, the Father technically is the Spirit. No, no, he's not. Because actually, when you read the Scriptures, you see that the Son, he does the will of the Father. So Jesus goes to pray in lonely places. Why? Because when he's Jesus with flesh on, according to John 1, he's seeking the Father's will. Yahweh has a plan. And so he's surrendering to the Father's will. It was the Father's will to crush him on the cross. And Jesus submitted to the will of the Father. When Jesus was baptized, read this in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus was baptized, we read that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So he surrenders to the Father and he's led by the Spirit. So Jesus is not the Spirit, Jesus is not the Father, but Jesus is the Elohim, God, Father is the Elohim, Spirit is the Elohim. Make sense? All on the same then. brilliant. Thanks for coming today. Hope you had a great church service. That was awesome. And for people who can't see it over there and online, there we go, right there. There's the drawing if you're making notes. Elohim, Father. I feel like a weather lady. You know, I'm trying to watch it on the screen. And in Exeter this week, I don't know why I chose Exeter, but mostly clouds, with a high chance of socks and sliders in Dorset. So this is what we see, this triune Godhead. Now, I've been racking my brains thinking about how do I best help us understand this. So check this out at home. In a one-dimensional viewing point, here is one line. Okay? If you look at this in a one-dimensional way, one line. Okay, I'll turn it, and it's another line. It's the same size, it's the same length, but it's a different line. I'll turn it again, it's the same size, same length, but yet it's a different line. Three different lines from a one-dimensional unit, but when you look from a three-dimensional unit, what you see is those three aspects of the triangle, although they are different, they together, collectively, make the triangle. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now you might be thinking, why is Dom like faffing with this? 
Well, this is why. I believe a lack of knowledge causes people to perish. Okay? So we're reading the scriptures. And I think many of us, even in this room and at home, online, are living one-dimensional lives. Because we don't understand the essence of the Spirit and this idea of the Spirit. And so we'll continue. Um, how I'm going to continue, I'm not quite sure just yet because this is a huge deal. But let's think about it like this. The Holy Spirit has a history. <laughs> that, I found that really funny. The Holy Spirit has a history, right? Let me give you the timeline of everything. Okay, so here is the start and here is the end of all things. Okay? And there is going to be an end of all things. If you watch the news, it looks like it's getting closer. Okay? There, is got, there was a start and there's an end. And between that time, many years have passed. Okay? Now, what's interesting about the timeline of everything is that 2,000 years ago, something shifted significantly for mankind. And it's the cross of Christ. Cross of Christ. It's a game changer. Let me explain why. Everybody who, if you want to come closer, Josh, you can. I know you like to be near me, and that's fine. You can come close, my brother. Everybody who existed before the cross were imperfect. I know you may feel imperfect this morning. I'll get to that in a minute. But everybody before the cross was imperfect. They couldn't relate to God. God couldn't relate to them. Because people were sinful, God is holy. God is perfect. People are imperfect. So people could not approach God of their own volition, of their own accord, because they were fundamentally dysfunctional and flawed. God instituted a sacrificial system. Now, this sounds like crazy, but this is how it plays out, is that they would sacrifice an animal. I used a cat in the first service. I wasn't very popular by the end of it. So now I'll use a pig, because I assume that lots of us like to eat pork, um, unless you're Jewish, and that's a controversial issue. Sorry about that. Um, in fact, let's not use a pig. That's not helpful. I use a bird. I don't, I, I'm drawing isn't my strong point, okay? It kind of looks like a Tyrannosaurus dodo kind of hybrid, um, which is scary. And this is what God did. <laughs> um, God instituted sacrificial system, sacrificial law. And here's the principle, is that people would bring a bird much smaller than themselves, not one that was four times as big, okay? They would hand their sacrifice to a high priest, we spoke about this in Church Defined when I looked at the Holy Temple. But you need to, you need to understand this for you to track with where I'm going in my head. Um, and God says, listen, there's got to be blood for your sinfulness. There's got to be death. That's the consequence of sin. Sin leads to death. We know that to be true, even if you don't believe in God. Immorality ultimately leads to dysfunction, chaos, and death. But God says, listen, if you bring an animal on your behalf... And you sacrifice that animal, symbolically, what I will accept that sacrifice to be is a foreshadowing of the ultimate sacrifice that's coming. So this weird hybrid bird dodo 
pterodactyl thing here. You know, it wasn't in and of itself sufficient to deal with the sins of everybody here. But God knew that he was going to send his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. That when Jesus' blood was shed, that, that sacrifice was sufficient to deal with sin, guilt, and shame. Now, this is the crazy thing, is because now everybody living this side of the cross, i.e. us, we live in the reality that it's like party time. We should be. Because we're not waiting for a sacrifice. We're not looking to a sacrifice to come. We're living from a sacrifice. So in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, it says that by one sacrifice, and we spoke about this in the Holy Joe series, by one sacrifice, God has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now, why does this matter? This is where we're getting now. This is the landing point. Okay is that the Holy Spirit has always been at work since the beginning of time, since he was hovering on the waters. But how he works is now different. You see, before Christ, people um, encountered the Spirit of God, but in a temporary way. So think about it like this. Um, uh, Saul, for example, who was a king in the Old Testament here, I'll put a little crown on him, or a tent. That's not a Mohican. That's a crown. Just saying, okay. Saul here, it says in the scriptures that the Spirit came up on him and he prophesied. But then the Spirit departed. You, you look at Joseph. Let's put Joseph back here. You know, Joseph and his technicolor dream coat, right? Joseph over here. Let's kind of do thought bubbles coming out of head. The Spirit came on him. And he could interpret dreams. Like the Holy Spirit came in the Old Testament and gave people a supernatural edge temporarily. Okay, can you see that there, Pat? Okay. Gave people a supernatural edge temporarily. Or we think of, um, I, like, I love the example of Bezalel, okay, who would exist around here. Bezalel... Right, He's almost like a passing character in the Old Testament, but he's so important because actually what we read is that he was key and fundamental to the creative development of the tabernacle. And what it says is that God put his spirit up on him so that he could create kind of inspiring things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But yet again, the Holy Spirit couldn't reside. Why? Because people were imperfect. People weren't fully atoned for. So the presence of God, the Spirit of God, the breath of God couldn't come and stay. However, as I said, Pentecost was a game changer. Because Pentecost happens here, just after the cross. And the Holy Spirit's behavior is quite different. Why? Because now the Holy Spirit comes to the church and dwells church and never leaves the church. But here's the deficit here. He's, many of us maybe don't realize that's the case. We're still living with an Old Testament mentality. The Holy Spirit comes on me to do this or to do that. Or maybe uh, the Holy Spirit's not happy with me this week so he's left. 
But when you are bought with the blood of Jesus Christ, what we read is that you are given the Spirit as a deposit. You are given the Spirit. In fact, immediately after Jesus dies on the cross and he's resurrected and he sees his disciples in John 20, we read this. He says, again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, reading that should take on a whole new light because Jesus breathed on them. Have you ever wondered why Jesus breathed on them? It's because in the original text, Numa and Ruach, the Spirit speaks to the breath of God. So Jesus now standing before his disciple, disciples is like breathing on them and he's saying, receive the Holy Spirit. Like this changes everything for us. And Phil, you may want to come up. I've got three minutes, 30 seconds left. And so that just commits me to conclude this message um, for today. But the reason I think this is such a vitally important consideration for us is this, is because normally we put the Holy Spirit in the weird camp, like a force of God that makes people do stuff they don't want to do, cooking chickens, you know, or the funky chicken dance, or whatever it is, or, you you know, weird manifestations of the Spirit that I'm not saying aren't God, but that becomes in our mind a deterrent because we think, I, I kind of... I don't, want, I don't want to yield control of my body to this spirit that would make me do weird things. Now, let me tell you this. Is that like, does the spirit make us do weird stuff at times? Yes, he does. I've done a whole heap of weird things. In- I mean, that may be hard for you to believe, but it's really true. Like, I found myself responding to what the Holy Spirit's saying, and it's illogical, and it's unreasonable. Yet, I know it's the spirit of God speaking. And so, it's my responsibility as a disciple to align myself to the spirit of God. But I'm not talking about this morning is the spirit that moves in this way. I'm talking about the spirit you simply need to just get through life. Like if we reduce the Holy Spirit to something that gives us the warm and fuzzies on the inside, we've missed the essence of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the Elohim. He's the God of the universe. That's why the scripture writer says the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead lives in you because it's a It's an absolute mindset wrecking ball. It's like, if we fully understand that as the church, like, yes, I want the Spirit to prophesy. Yes, I want the Spirit to speak in tongues. Yes, I want the Spirit to kind of resist that stuff. But ultimately, I just need the Spirit to survive. I need the Spirit to live. And if we understand that this Holy Spirit is part of this Elohim Godhead, then the invitation is this. When Jesus looks at you and breathes on you, even in a COVID season, yeah? Jesus takes down his face mask and breathes on your face. So you're like, no, I'm melting. No, COVID alert. You know, as Jesus breathes on us, what we're actually doing is we're raising our hands and we're receiving God himself in our mortal frame. Christians aren't just nice people. Christians are powerful people. You know? Christians aren't just do-gooders who help old women cross the road. And pack bags at the 
is all that's cool because that is the fruit of the Spirit. That's kindness and love and gentleness playing out. That's the Holy Spirit working through your life. But Christians are carriers of the energy of God. Carriers of the breath of the wind of heaven. And this is why, right up to the point where Jesus kind of breathes on his disciples, kind of the impression we get up to Acts 2 is that the disciples were kind of lost. They were turned to They went back to what they knew. Jesus wasn't overly angry with them. We'll get into this more next week. But ultimately, Jesus knew that once they got the Holy Spirit, the world's going to be set on fire. And what I mean by that is not a literal physical flame. God, the energy of God, the wind of God, the breath of God is going to move through the land. And how's it going to happen? Through the church. How's it going to happen? Through disciples, through committed believers, yielded to the presence of God, saying, I am broken, I am dysfunctional, I am anxious, I am worried in and of myself, in my own strength, I don't have what I need of my own strength, I kind of despair about the future, but Holy Spirit, I receive you. And now I feel a supernatural edge in my life. I feel all of a sudden I'm seeing life 3D because now I feel the voice of God speaking to me. I feel the presence of God ministering to me. Jesus covering my shame and dealing with my sin, but the Holy Spirit leading me into effectiveness and fruitfulness. And this is what God's got for every person who calls on the name of the Lord. This is what God's got for us. Not just a passivity of living, but a powerful living. Being led. Led by the Spirit. And so, next week you need to come back. Because this is really the first part. And I'm in no rush to kind of get to the end. But next week I want to talk about how you receive the Holy Spirit. And how you're empowered by the Holy Spirit. But now you know when I talk about the Holy Spirit, exactly who I'm talking about. The Ruach of God, who was with God in the beginning. The presence and essence of God, who was God in the beginning. One person of this triune Godhead who changes everything for the church. Let's pray together. Spirit, we thank you. We thank you for being you. We thank you for doing what you do. And Holy Spirit, even this morning I sense your presence in the room. Even this morning you want to encounter people. You want to breathe on people, Lord. And you want to say, receive my spirit. Those who are anxious this morning, let me tell you, it's not... 10 therapy sessions that are going to bring your transformation and it's not a pack of antidepressants that are going to bring your liberty it's the spirit of God it's the breath of heaven it's the ruach of Elohim that is going to change the trajectory of your life and so Holy Spirit we welcome you we acknowledge our brokenness before you God, at times we don't feel worthy. Most of the time we don't feel worthy. Most of the time we feel confused. But God, we thank you for sending your son to die for us. That he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could be called sons and daughters of God. But Jesus, you said yourself in John 16, 
that it's good for the church that I go, that my helper would come. And Jesus, this morning, we acknowledge our need for your Holy Spirit, Lord God. So we honor the Holy Spirit today. We acknowledge the Holy Spirit as God. We acknowledge the Holy Spirit as your breath. We acknowledge the Holy Spirit as your wind. And over the course of this series and in small groups as we look at everyday supernatural and all those components, Lord, that, Father, our hunger and desperation and desire for the Holy Spirit would increase and increase and increase and that, like Jesus, we would live a life surrendering to the will of the Father but being led by the Holy Spirit. God, we thank you for your goodness. We pray, God, that you would wake us up out of one-dimensional living, cause us to see you as you are, that we may live a life of fruitfulness and effectiveness for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to respond to this time together. Come on, let's give the Lord a round of applause. That's great. We're going to respond to this word today by singing sound biblical truth that I hope as you sing these words, they now take on new power as you sing them because now you have a context and an understanding that will help you relate to what these songs are really speaking of. This Father, Son, Spirit, three in one. So let's stand to our feet and respond to God in worship this morning.